1: Bring in show music, please.
2: This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, America's top state for business unveiled.
3: We know it's light outside, so we can basically take out everything west of the Mississippi. I might be a time traveler. I don't know.
2: Results of CNBC's annual ranking after a couple more hints, of course.
3: I didn't get it right. I just want you to know.
2: And got vaxxed? Well, there's more where that came from. NIAID Director Dr. Anthony Fauci working with Pfizer to develop a vaccine booster strategy.
4: We know for sure that these vaccines are highly, highly effective in protecting you and quite safe. The real question that is being examined right now is what is the durability of that protection.
2: America's physical health plus some financial wellness. PayPal and Just Capital are working to alleviate the woes of American workers. Chipotle CEO Brian Nichol on the good news for his employees and why you can feel better about that burrito.
5: We've increased wages for all of our employees to the tune of about close to 20 percent. So now the average wage starting in our company is around $15.
2: And PayPal CEO Dan Shulman on why everyone else should follow suit.
6: The only sustainable competitive advantage that any company has is the strength of their workforce. How passionate is that workforce? How committed is it? How engaged is it?
2: It's Tuesday, July 13th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now.
5: Stand, Becky, by in three,
6: two,
1: one. Cue, please.
7: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Mike Santoli. Joe is off today.
3: I don't know what you guys think about this, but uh, Goldman Sachs saying the pandemic has led to a surge in productivity among U.S. businesses. And a new analyst note the bank saying that companies have been forced to rapidly digitize their operations since the health crisis began That's resulted in annualized growth in output per hour climbing to more than 3%. That compares to a 1.4% jump recorded in the previous business cycle, Becky. So uh, kind of interesting. Um, Maybe we're making uh, some lemonade out of lemons.
7: Yeah, digitization. I mean, we've been saying that for a long time with productivity. Plus, I think people were working harder at home than anybody maybe thought at
3: the time. I mean, I do think it's every company is trying to, to maximize this, but also it's something that the Fed's concerned with. I mean, GDP is back to basically where it was before the pandemic with like 7 million fewer people working. So that's something long term. You don't want to, you know, get completely set in stone. Mean,
7: meaning that you wouldn't need those those workers. Meaning how, sure. many, yeah. how many exactly. of those
3: people sidelined really we'll are going to have
7: back. a place right. when,
3: when things get rolling.
2: Almost every summer for the last 13 years, CNBC has unveiled a list of the top states for business. It ranks all 50 states according to a rigorous test the network has developed with guidance from a diverse array of business and policy experts, even government sources. The list started back in 2007. We skipped 2020, you know, what with all the other news we had, but every other year we've put all 50 states to the test. We use over 85 different metrics in 10 categories of competitiveness, like workforce, the cost of doing business, infrastructure, access to capital, cost of living, among others. For the past five years, Texas is the only state that's consistently been in the top five. Washington, Utah, and North Carolina are consistently in the top five or ten. And Virginia has worked its way up the rankings, snagging top state in 2019. But we don't just unveil the list, no, no. CNBC special correspondent Scott Cohn, the journalist behind this list, compiles a complimentary list of hints to get us excited.
1: The hints are turn, turn, turn,
7: break a leg, talking turkey, mic drop, and one and done. I heard so many good guesses yesterday on Twitter from the turn, turn, turn one that you revealed right here on Squawk Box. There were people who said turn, turn, turn could be the Indianapolis Speedway. Somebody else said it could be the Speedway in Pennsylvania, which apparently only has three sides. Um, somebody else said that they thought they recognized the 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 teepee or wherever you were standing in front of from a state park one person said that it was definitely a state park in pennsylvania another said it was definitely a state park in virginia which threw me off a little bit But we had some pretty good guesses somebody else said turn 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 could be alabama because it was played in forrest gump there there are some very smart and uh kind of deep thought uh hints that came out on twitter or guesses after those hints anybody right
1: It always is interesting to get into the minds of Squawk Box viewers.
2: It takes CNBC about six months to crunch all the numbers to deliver this list, but finally it's here. Coming in at number five, Tennessee, its first time in the top tier. Then at four, Texas, its lowest ranking since we started this whole business. Three is Utah. Apparently, the beehive state has the most reliable electrical grid in the country. And runner-up, number two, North Carolina. This is the state's strongest showing ever, which makes sense. Apple chose North Carolina for its first East Coast HQ. But as impressive as these states are, lack of inclusiveness and poor public health, like low vaccination rates in Tennessee, anti-trans legislation in Texas, and a lack of anti-discrimination laws in North Carolina could hinder continued business growth. And now... Drum roll, please. Here is Scott Cohn.
1: This year in 2021, America's top state for business is a state that knows how to toot its own horn. We are live in Norfolk at the Port of Virginia. This is America's top state for business, this port in the midst of a $1.5 billion expansion. Here is how Virginia stayed on top. The winner and still champion, Virginia, the Old Dominion, our first-ever back-to-back winner. Virginia's best category, education, with well-performing public schools and great universities, all feeding the third-best workforce in the country, smart and tech-savvy, leading a comeback. Virginia makes some of its biggest strides in life, health and inclusion, traditionally not its strong suit. Two years ago, embroiled in his own controversy about race, Governor Ralph Northam vowed to turn it around. I want to let this country know and certainly Virginians know that we are an inclusive state. Since then, the state has expanded voting rights, protected LGBTQ rights, and removed Confederate statues. Virginia does have issues. Costs are high, and the state was attracting fewer educated workers even before last year. Still, our study shows Virginia on top, going into the pandemic and coming out. About those hints what the heck was i talking about all day yesterday turn 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 frustrated with his office situation after drafting the declaration of independence thomas jefferson perhaps the most famous virginian invented the swivel chair break a leg america's first public theater was in Williamsburg, built in 1716. Talking Turkey, you think that might be Massachusetts, but no, the first Thanksgiving was in Jamestown two years earlier in 1619. Mic drop, the electret microphone, it's on your phone, it's on everything else, that was invented by a Virginian, James West, born in Prince Edward County. And one and done, this is the only state to limit its governor to one term at a time. Andrew? Scott, there it is. I didn't get
3: it right. I just wanted you to know. I had, I had no idea, but... Um... You did it once again, and you did it beautifully. Scott, appreciate it.
2: You can read all about our top states' methodology and check out where your state stacks up on CNBC.com. Still to come on Squawk Pod, to boost or not to boost. And what's your risk either way? The vaxxed, the unvaxxed, and the Delta variant with Dr. Anthony Fauci.
4: The level of virus in the nasopharynx of a vaccinated person is considerably lower than that in the unvaccinated person, which just would strongly suggest that the likelihood of your passing it on to anyone else is much, much, much
0: less.
2: That conversation right after this.
0: What's on the horizon for financial markets?
2: You're listening to Squawk Pod with Becky Quick, Andrew Ross-Sorkin, and Mike Santoli, who's in for Joe. Here's Becky. U.S. officials
7: met with Pfizer executives yesterday. The big focus, whether or not fully vaccinated people will need a booster shot. Dr. Fauci was a part of that meeting, and he joins us this morning. He's the chief medical advisor to the president. And uh, Dr. Fauci, thank you very much for being with us today. Um, I have a lot of questions, and we're hoping you can sort through some of this with us. First of all, what what happened at the Pfizer meeting yesterday? What was the internal data that they showed? and, And did it get you to the point where you think, okay, Americans may eventually need boosters?
4: Well, it was fundamentally a courtesy meeting. They had made an announcement a day or two before. Uh, regarding some uh, data from Israel, as well as data that they had collected. They wanted to share it with us because there was obviously a lot of attention publicly to that. So it was a meeting, a courteous meeting where they ex- where we exchanged information. It certainly was not anything even approximating a decisional meeting at all. Uh, their data, as important as it will be and is likely is, is really one part of a very larger puzzle of data, as it were, some of which, a lot of which will be coming from our own CDC when they look at more than 20 cohorts that they're following to ask and answer the same question. And that is, what is the durability of the protective response? We know for sure that these vaccines are highly, highly effective in protecting you and quite safe. The real question that is being examined right now is what is the durability of that protection? Does it wane off? And if so, how soon? And if you do do a boost, how high do you get the response up? Those were all discussed. But again, as I mentioned, there was nothing that came even close to any decision. It was really mostly a courtesy meeting uh, briefing us on their data.
7: Yeah, I wouldn't expect any decisions to be made at this point, but it would be interesting to know if the data influenced you. What what do you see in terms of the effectiveness over time? Does does it drop dramatically over 2 months, 4 months, 6 months?
4: Well, I can't tell you much about their own data because it's still at the level of we agreed upon confidentiality. I don't think it's going to surprise anybody. The data that is public now is the Israeli data which they've made public and as you can see from the data There seemed to have been a sharp drop in protection against just infection, asymptomatic infection, after a certain number of months. What has held firm is the very good protection against severe disease that might lead to hospitalization.
7: That's great news. And I'll I'll tell you what we discussed with a doctor who we had on the show yesterday. I I mean, I've been fully vaccinated. I feel very comfortable about myself. What I feel less um, confident in is the idea of whether or not I can pass this on to my children who are too young to be vaccinated at this point. Um, the Delta variant, if something else were to come through, how, how confident do you feel that I either won't pass this on to my children who haven't been vaccinated or to you know, parents who are in a position of being co- medically compromised? What, what can you tell us or anybody else who has those same concerns right now?
4: Well, they're understandable concerns. They're quite reasonable. We're being asked that a lot. And again, we are collecting data now that will allow us to hopefully, in a more confident way, answer your question. I can tell you what data we have that does show that if a a young, otherwise healthy person like yourself is fully vaccinated, even if you do get a breakthrough infection, it likely will be either with no symptoms or minimal symptoms. One of the studies showed that if you examine the level of virus in the nasopharynx of a vaccinated person who has a breakthrough infection and doesn't have any symptoms, and compare that to the level of virus in the nasopharynx of an unvaccinated person who gets infected and has no symptoms, the level of virus in the nasopharynx of the vaccinated person is considerably lower than that in the unvaccinated person, which just would strongly suggest that the likelihood of your passing it on to anyone else is much, much, much less than if you were not vaccinated. Now, the study that does need to be done is the actual clinical observation study to determine the efficiency or not of transmission. And those studies are ongoing now. So even though we have a suggestion Of what the answer is we haven't definitively shown it yet but we will have that data within a reasonable period of time
3: dr fauci it's andrew Uh, a behavioral science question of sorts how concerned are you and how concerned is the administration effectively that engaging in a conversation about boosters makes it even less attractive for those who have yet to take the first shot of the vaccine Um, that they won't want to take it at all because they're going to say that either it is not effective or they're going to say, I'm not only in for one shot or two, I may be in for three, and maybe I'm going to be even in for more over time.
4: Okay, so that's really a great question, and it allows me to make a point that we really need to clarify. When you're talking about a booster, namely a third shot in a two-shot regimen, what we're discussing now, or a booster following a single shot of J&J, this has absolutely nothing to do with the effectiveness of the vaccine. These vaccines are highly, highly effective, both in the clinical trial and in the real-world effectiveness studies. Let me give you a cogent example. 99.5% of people who die of COVID are unvaccinated only 0.5% of those who die are vaccinated. So it isn't a question of whether the vaccine is effective or not. It has to do with the durability of the protection. So there really is nothing wrong if in fact, and I don't know whether it's gonna happen or not, but if there will be a necessity to maintain the high level of effectiveness by having a booster sometime down the pike, that, that be that a year or two or what have you, be that selectively in elderly or in people who have underlying condition, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. We do that with vaccines all the time. When you look at the regimen of the vaccines that you and I got when we were children, namely the measles, mumps, rubella, etc., you get a vaccine, you get a second shot. And then a few years later, you get a third shot. So there's nothing new or mysterious about the possibility or even the likelihood that in order to maintain the durability of the protection, that you might need another shot. We've gotta make sure we clarify that with people.
3: It has nothing to do whether or not it's effective. We know it's highly effective. Dr. Fauci, I I appreciate that point. The reason I ask the question is, because there seems to have been some frustration inside the administration about Pfizer coming out with its announcement uh, anticipating a booster. And from the the reporting that I've done, I gather that the concern seems to be that, look, we haven't even gotten uh, enough people vaccinated the first time and conversations about a booster are not going to help that conversation. Um, And there is a question about should we just should we not engage with that discussion? Should we do we need to be straighter with the public that maybe a booster is going to be in the offing and how you think about the, the push pull? Because I know that part of this is a behavioral science issue. It became an issue when it came to masking. Right. You know, you make, again, excellent points. So let me give you my perspective
4: on it. The discussion about boosters is really an appropriate preparation on the part of the companies together with the NIH and the CDC and others, in being prepared in the eventuality that you might need a boost. But when you translate that into, we will need a boost, everyone's gonna get a boost, that is not appropriate. It's not appropriate for the reasons that you just mentioned, is that we still haven't vaccinated enough people in the primary part of this. We only have 48% of the total population vaccinated, We have about 68 or so percent of adults having received at least one dose. If you think this is an issue in this country, take a look at what the WHO is faced with when they have to worry about the entire world and know that there are some countries when there's less than a couple of percent of the population being vaccinated. And this is a global pandemic, which requires a global response. So you're absolutely right here we are talking about the possibility of a third shot boost and a major component of the world has never even received a single shot we've got to make sure we take those things into consideration
7: yeah, i want to ask you about some other issues but just as a follow-up on that does that get you into the ethics of whether americans are going to look greedy if they get booster shots which then all of a sudden takes me back to the idea we, we need to share we understand this is a global problem And does that guide us in whether or not we decide booster shots are are necessary early on?
3: You know,
4: I think you can do both in the sense of consider the possibility and maybe even implement boosters at the same time that you make sure we do everything we can to get doses to people in parts of the world that don't have ready access to that. And if you look at what the the United States is doing, we're doing a lot. I mean, we now have pledged 500 million doses in addition to the 80 million doses that we said we would be distributing. We're already distributing a considerable amount of that. We have $4 billion that we put into the COVAX, the WHO and other organizations that are gonna be putting the resources into getting vaccines. So we are doing both we clearly are making an effort we all need to do more the entire world that at least the developed world the world that has the resources needs to do more to make sure that vaccines get distributed equitably throughout the world and you're right that is an ethical issue
7: at the same time there there are questions about different types of vaccines and and whether they're all created equal. Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, along with the University of Oxford, are now conducting some of these early stage research ideas into whether or not if they modify things, if they modify their COVID-19 vaccines, whether they could either reduce or eliminate the risk of blood clots that comes with that. And then the FDA just attached this warning of that rare nerve syndrome to the J&J vaccine as well. Um, Those seem to be the vaccines where there are many more questions that are being asked versus the mRNA vaccines like Pfizer and Moderna. Is is, is that an accurate description?
4: Well, I mean, obviously there are always, and we've seen it already, uh, unusual and even rare adverse events associated with vaccines. With all the vaccines, you'll see that. Every time it's been examined, the conclusion has come firmly that the benefit of the vaccine far outweighs any risk of an adverse event. The vaccines that have been given emergency use authorization in the United States are all highly effective vaccines. And I think we can say that with a degree of confidence.
7: How long do you think it will be before there is full authorization for those vaccines, which I ask in part because a lot of workplaces are reluctant to require vaccinations when those vaccines are still being used under the emergency use authorization?
4: Yeah, a couple of comments about that. I I don't know when. I mean, I, I can't get ahead of the FDA. They do their thing. They dot all the I's and cross all the T's about that. But the one thing that people should realize that even though we are still under an emergency use authorization, it's a bit different than other emergency use authorizations, which usually are granted with not nearly as much positive data as we have for these products. So all EUAs are not created equal. So when we say it's still not fully approved, the data are about as good as it gets. So as I've said multiple times, and I have no hesitation to say it now, I would be astounded if these vaccines, namely the mRNA and the JNAJ, didn't get full approval. If you look at the United States, which mostly are the mRNA vaccines, you know, we've given hundreds of millions of doses to people, and the efficacy or effectiveness in the real world is unquestioned. So we're going to get a full approval the question is, it's just going to take a little bit more time.
7: Dr. Fauci, I want to thank you for, for your time today and for being with us. Uh, we appreciate these important updates. Thank you.
4: My, my pleasure. Good to be with you. Cheese will be next.
2: Next on SquawkPod, talk about good takeaway. Chipotle, along with others, has teamed up with PayPal and Just Capital for a better, more livable take home for its employees. PayPal CEO Dan Schulman.
6: This is really a national crisis, and we felt that we needed to step up, measure exactly the stress that our employees were feeling, and then put into place initiatives that would raise the amount of disposable income they had.
2: And Chipotle CEO, Brian Nickel.
5: We tie that in with education, reimbursement, as well as debt-free degrees. And we've seen just a dramatic change in people's retention as well as their confidence in their future.
2: Just
0: in time for Taco Tuesday. We're back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.
2: Welcome back to Squawk Pod.
3: Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Sorkin, along with Becky Quick and Mike Santoli. Joe's off today. Some of America's best known companies are putting some new emphasis on their employees' financial health and security. Chipotle, Verizon, Cibani, and other companies representing more than a quarter of a million American workers are joining PayPal and Just Capital in their worker financial wellness initiative, which aims to make employee financial wellness a top corporate priority. Joining us right now in an exclusive interview is PayPal CEO Dan Schulman and Chipotle CEO Brian Nicole. Good morning to both of you. Uh, Dan, explain what this initiative is all about.
6: Uh, thanks for having us on, Andrew. I think um, about two years or so ago, we noticed uh, inside PayPal when we did a survey uh, of our employees that almost half of them were struggling to make ends meet at the end of every month, which isn't surprising because 78% of all adults in the US report that they struggle to pay their bills every single month. And so this is really a national crisis and we felt that we needed to step up, uh, take a real hard look, measure uh, exactly the stress that our employees were feeling and then put into place initiatives that would raise the amount of disposable income they had after they paid all their taxes and essential living expenses from what was 4 to 6%. We targeted 20% as a minimum. Today, we're at 18%. And when Just Capital and the Financial Health Network saw what we were doing, we decided to come together to encourage other companies like Chipotle and Brian, who's on the show with us, to look at what is the real assessment of their workers' financial security and financial health and then measure it and then see what we could do to try and address this kind of national crisis that we're facing.
3: So, Brian, when you did this inside Chipotle, what have you found and what are you doing about it?
5: Yeah. So similar to what Dan was saying, you know, you definitely find that people at the end of every month are really living, you know, paycheck to paycheck and, you know, have a lot of concern about how they pay the next month's bills. So um, obviously some of the steps we've recently taken is we've increased wages for all of our employees to the tune of about close to 20%. So now the average uh, wage starting in our company is around $15.00. Um, And the reason why that's important is, you know, as you look at that starting wage uh, and you surround that with additional benefits um, that give some additional peace of mind to the employee, it sets them up where hopefully they can train, develop, and land in a role that ends up earning them close to $100,000 in less than, you know, three years. And uh, we tie that in with education, reimbursement, as well as debt-free degrees, and we've seen just a dramatic change in people's retention as well as their confidence in their future, uh, not just in our company, but their confidence in being, I'd say, a, you know, a a benefactor or a true leader in their community.
3: Dan, can you speak to this uh, and and maybe Brian as well? There are a lot of uh, CEOs and leaders who look at this and they say, look, adding 20 percent to my costs uh, or 20 percent to salaries. I don't know if it's their full cost, but that's a lot. um, And I'm not sure I'm going to get the productivity back. What what do you say to them?
6: Well, I think the only sustainable competitive advantage that any company has is the strength of their workforce. How passionate is that workforce? How committed is it? Um, uh, How engaged is it? And we found when we made this investment in our employees, just like we invest in marketing, just like we invest in research and development, the payback was tremendous. Engagement scores hit all-time highs. Our net promoter scores uh, with customers hit all-time highs. Our retention um, was at an all-time high, and therefore training costs dropped much lower. And so, this kind of investment, Andrew, I think, is essential if you ever have any hope from moving from being a good company to a great company. It all rests on the back of our employees they need to be engaged they need to be passionate and this is one way of showing them uh, that we're all uh, together in this that we all need to lean in serve customers and when we do that obviously we serve shareholders at the end of the day
3: hey brian can you speak to this issue too because i think there's a difference between the technology industry uh, a very high margin industry perhaps uh, and yours and also just the psychology in the c-suite which is typically if you send out an rfp and i know an rfp is not for employment but an rfp for some project typically you're looking for quote unquote the best value and so how do you actually ascertain you know the the lowest price if you will for 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 the most uh for the most um, bang for your buck
5: yeah obviously our industry is a little different than the tech industry um, in regard to where people start Uh, but You know, what I will tell you is it's exactly the same as what Dan just articulated. We have to invest in our people. Um, It's really hard to make a great culinary experience if we don't have engaged people that believe in the company, believe in the purpose and ultimately believe they can grow with us. Um, You know, so the investment we know pays off because we get greater retention. Uh, You're going to hear a lot of similar things that you just heard from Dan, greater retention, more engagement more passion about Chipotle and you know the way we're able to invest in this is we've built what we believe is a great value proposition we provide to our customers which gives us you know the ability to attract uh people that want to be in the culinary restaurant industry uh, to provide great experiences and you know a a great example is this debt-free there go ahead go ahead
3: yeah. No. What I was going to ask you though is, does it feel like an employer's market right now? I mean, or, or or an employee's market? And and how much does that impact the way you're thinking?
5: Yeah. Look, it's definitely a very competitive market for labor. Uh, I believe our purpose and our employee value proposition is what's leading our way to attract people into our organization. You know, fortunately for us, we are back to you know our staffing levels pre. Uh, pre the pandemic and arguably in a really strong position uh, than we've been in a long time on our labor and the engagement of our uh, whole entire organization. So you you have to be on your game. You have to be communicating. You have to have a compelling employee proposition. And I think your company's got to have a reason to be that gets people excited about coming to work and being part of something that's hopefully doing the right thing for their community and the customers that they serve.
3: Hey, Dan, can you speak to what's going on with the consumer right now? I know you have Q2 earnings that are coming up soon, but in terms of what you're seeing in terms of the flows, because I think it also speaks to the labor issue right now.
6: Yeah. Well, we're clearly seeing a comeback uh, in consumer spending. Uh, that's not even across the world, uh, Andrew. You've got um, some, uh, some countries that are having um, an uneven recovery because they're still battling COVID, but here in the United States, you're seeing the travel sector, the entertainment sector, the restaurant industry bounce back uh, quite substantially. In uh, mid, uh, by the way, elevated levels of e commerce spend. So it's really a one two punch here in the economy. It's quite strong here in the US.
3: And, and what is your sense in terms of spend, what people are doing with sa- savings uh, at this point? And what happens when certain uh, some of the payments roll off? I mean, what are you what are you expecting uh, later this fall in this? I don't know if we're in a YOLO moment, but it, it does feel like something's happening.
6: Yeah, well, savings accounts are at all time highs right now. Um, and, um, you know, the consumer is beginning to uh, flex uh, their muscles um, within the economy. So I think um you're going to have, I think, a strong economic recovery, at least in the U.S., through the end of this year. And I would bet into the beginning part of next year as well. There's a lot of money uh, out there that's in savings. People have uh, been careful about that through the pandemic. I think you're beginning to see companies step up uh, and address financial health uh, for their workers, make sure that they don't struggle uh, to make ends meet at the end of every month. So I think, uh, at least here in the US, I'm pretty bullish about the economy over the next year or so.
3: Brian, I don't know if you can speak to it, but we keep having questions about whether this inflation is transitory or not. We're talking here about wages going up. I don't think those are gonna be going down uh, anytime soon. Uh, and then you're seeing it in, 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 uh, in the cost of food, no?
5: You know, uh, we're definitely seeing some cost pressure. Um, you know, and whether or not that is permanent in some of the, uh, you know, key inputs for our business is to be determined. Uh, but, you know, I think the positive is our supply chain definitely seems to be starting to break through some of the bottlenecks that we were battling, uh, throughout COVID. So I think as the supply chain gets to a better, more stable place, I'm optimistic that hopefully some of these pricing, um, movements will start to settle down. Uh, and then, you know, we can get going with uh, business as usual on a lot of our key ingredients.
3: Well, thank you. We had to talk crypto next time, Dan, uh, as well. Appreciate uh, look what, forward what, to what that. we're doing and look forward to following the progress of all of it.
2: That's the show for today. Thank you for listening as always. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, listen and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow.
1: We are clear. Thanks, guys.